All right, good morning, everyone, and welcome back to our study of uh, 2 Samuel. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. We left off in chapter 5, and what we saw last week was, of course, tumult in the kingdom. A fact I often forget myself that even immediately after the death of Saul, the kingdom is divided for the first time, and certainly not for the last time, between David, who is king of Judah in the south, and Ishbosheth, one of Saul's heirs, who is made king in the north. Of course, theologically speaking, Ishbosheth's reign is invalid. David has been anointed, not Ishbosheth. Then we also see uh, this very tragic civil war in which, of course, Abner is on the side of Ishbosheth. He is uh, the commander of Saul's army. And then you have Joab on David's side. And so you have these two commanders, and you have the, the tragic event where uh, Joab's brother pursues Abner, and Abner kills him. And then um, you have Abner later on getting sick of Ishbosheth, joining with David. And then, of course, Joab, uh, this is chapter 3, Joab enacts revenge and murders Abner. Not long thereafter, Ishbosheth himself is murdered by some of his underlings. And the kingdom is then unified under David. Throughout, we see David uh, showing mercy to his enemies. So we saw him show mercy to Saul. He shows mercy and, uh, well, I shouldn't say, mer well, mercy is really the wrong word. R respect, maybe. I mean, he certainly shows mercy to Saul, but that's not the event to which I'm really referring. I mean, um, he shows respect to Saul, uh, respect to his enemies, um, respect to Saul after he is killed, respect to uh, Abner after he is killed, respect to Ishbosheth after he is killed, um, thus showing respect and having pity and showing kindness to his enemies. David exhibits very much a Christ-like nature and attitude. And this works to unite the kingdom. This works to unite the kingdom. And of course, those who think they're doing him favors along the way, uh, David has no patience for. So the men who murder Ishbosheth, David has them put to death. Uh, even when Joab murders Abner, David curses Joab, and upon David's death, Joab will be put to death. And then you have uh, the same with the man who comes to report that he killed Saul. 
that Amalekite man is put to death by David. So David, too, showing that uh, he is merciless to those who are merciless. And so in many ways, these things uh, function to unify the kingdom under David, which is really what we've been seeing up through chapter 5 here to 4. Then heading into the new material, you have these great victories of David over the Philistines. And of course, David's military conquests, conquests are of the utmost importance because you really have a job left unfinished when the people, this goes all the way back even prior to the judges, at the beginning of Judges, when Joshua and the people come through, they make great conquest of the promised land, and the major powers of the promised land are defeated, but there are still these pockets of Canaanite peoples, and they're worshiping false gods and constantly antagonizing Israel. Because of Israel's lack of faithfulness and destroying these kingdoms, they're allowed to persist, causing all manner of problems throughout the ages of the judges throughout and up until the age of uh, Saul. And so military conquest forms a major part of David's reign simply because he is putting these, uh, these smaller groups down um, so that the kingdom may remain unified and relatively faithful to Yahweh relative to other times in Israel's history. And then also uh, we're going to see David enacting um, military conquest and vengeance on other enemies of God uh, outside of the promised land proper, or at least bordering on the outskirts of the promised land proper. So we're going to, anyway, we're going to see all this going on. Uh, but where we left off chapter 5, uh, I think we had gotten through 21. Let's just read 17 following. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come up and spread out in the valley of Raphaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal Perazim. And David defeated them there, and he said, The Lord has burst through my enemies before me like a bursting flood. Again, language reminiscent of the exodus and the, the floodwaters that destroyed Pharaoh. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. And I mentioned, mentioned this, this is important on both points. Baal Perazim means uh, Lord of bursting through. The Perazim, the bursting through, becomes somewhat tragically thematic. And then the Baal there being a generic for the word Lord, that even Baal could just simply generically, Yahweh could be included in that. So obviously, David not doing any Baal worship here as such, you know, but calls the place Baal Perazim, the Lord breaks forth. So it just shows the ambiguity of that term Baal. It can be used in a wide, broad sense generically for the Lord. It can be used in a narrow sense for Baal proper, the idol. Verse 21, And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. I think the study note says to be burned. And that, uh, that again goes to show, too, one of the most important things we want to see is in the Old Testament worldview, nations aren't just nations. They are the, the peoples of foreign gods. 
the peoples of, uh, frankly, frankly, uh, angelic beings that have fallen away from God that are being worshipped by these people, and you know, in some some respects, are um, showing signs and wonders to these people. Then warfare is God versus God. Warfare is a the is necessarily a theological event, and so this is showing. Yahweh conquering through David. Of course, we see a type of uh, David as, uh, as the king, the shepherd king. We see Christ as the, as the shepherd king. And as David is conquering the nations, so Christ in his ministry is going out and driving out demons from the people and this kind of thing. These are very much parallel kinds of events. Verse 22, the new material. And the Philistines came up yet again two major conflicts here with the Philistines, and spread out in the valley of Raphaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. So again, this is the heavenly armies, the heavenly host, and God is uh, showing in no uncertain terms that it is he who is giving, giving David these victories. And David knows that. It's all quite refreshing when, you're, when your contrast here is Saul and just the godlessness and the doing as he sees fit and the utter disrespect toward God uh, that Saul exhibited. Here, David much more pious. Verse 25, And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. Okay. Now, we have not heard much in the narrative about the ark heretofore. So, let's simply uh, pick up at chapter 6, verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. This is quite a sizable army, especially since not that long ago, David had a, a little roving band of 600. <laughs> now he's got 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bela, Judah, and here, too, you see, again, a generic use of the language of Baal, Bela being plural, lords of Judah. Um, and here, I think, it's, I think it's the study. No, let me see. It might actually be the LSB study note. Yes, lords of Judah is the, is the literal. So here you have you know, a, a pagan reference in all likelihood with the multiplicity. Anyway, David arose, went with the people who were with him from Bela, Judah, to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. You recall, of course, the Ark with the cherubim on either side, so the Ark is, a, is, a, is viewed as a throne. That's how it's viewed. And thus also the mercy seat, the one who sits upon it, having mercy. And it is the blood poured out upon the mercy seat received by the Lord. Thus the Lord forgives the people. 
and all of this is the type and foreshadowing of Christ who is the propitiation whose blood is put forth on the mercy seat as Paul explains in Romans uh, thus thus God's mercy toward us is on the basis of the blood of Christ verse 3 and they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Now, of course, Saul had misused the ark from time to time, bringing it into battle. In fact, the ark had gotten captured. If memory serves, that was the last major event we had with the ark. Of course, it's returned, but it just does not feature prominently in Saul's reign because Saul cut himself off from God, and then God said, fine, have it your way. You're cut off. And so then this is really kind of the, the next major phase or the next major event is, you know, and you can see David's faithfulness. The kingdom's been given to him. It's unified. He's got these major military victories out of the way. Let's, let's get the ark. Let's make that the center again. All right, so it's in the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. They go to get it. And Uzzah and Ahio the sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. All right. Verse 5, And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So a listing of uh, the full instruments here. And when they came to the threshing floor, uh, oh, yeah, you know, a point is made. I, maybe it's even this study note. Praise and thanksgiving to the Lord for his benefits. Psalms were probably used. For example, Psalm 150. Listing of all the instruments indicates corporate worship. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely our language for it. I, it really, really, I think it, it indicates, well, it indicates the perception that this is a worshipful event that this is, um, I mean, it's quite, I think it's quite different from, from what we would think of in America as a parade or something like that, where you're just celebrating or, you know, that just uh, having, having kind of a uh, jubilation. Um, this is a religious type of event. It's recognized as such. This is worship going on. Um, and yeah, it's unusual worship. I mean, with the, uh, with the songs and as we're going to see, the kind of the kind of dancing that takes place, <laughs> where where David is going to dance before the ark famously, um, this is actually uh, it's the only the only reference in the entirety of all scripture for males dancing, and likewise then males dancing in any kind of corporate worship. This is sometimes brought up as proof text. I mean, since like the 1970s for why we should have liturgical dancing. <laughs> And why, since it lists out all these instruments, you know, we should just get crazy and bring in instruments from all different kinds of genres and uh, that that should be the norm. I mean, none of that is proven by this text. That's all I'll say. And I know that those of you here and probably most of you watching online, that's not really an issue, so I won't belabor the point. But just very plainly, none of what goes on here proves or demonstrates that on your average Sunday morning we should have liturgical dancing and I mean, rock and roll are worse instruments. Complete non sequitur. All right. That's hardly the point here of this text. 
chapter 6, verse 6, And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah, or Uzzah put out his hand on the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died beside the ark of God. So, you know, when people are mentioning that this is the proof text for contemporary worship, they fail to mention this next point that uh, as jubilant as it was, God puts an end to the jubilation real quick. So one of the oxen stumbles, the ark slips. It is expressly forbidden for uh, Uzzah to grasp the ark. He grasps hold of the ark. Um, the study note puts it this way. As a priest, Uzzah ignored God's command with regard to moving the ark and followed the way of the Philistines. Regardless of how well-intentioned Uzzah was, his actions were neither guided nor limited by God's word. By striking down Uzzah, God showed that his word must be honored above all else. Okay? And so that's, I mean, that's that. It's a really sobering lesson. I mean, where you've got this exaltation and this joy and this worship of the Lord, and the Lord's like, yeah, well, that's all good, but my word's still my word, and I'm still God, and yeah, Uzzah, Uzzah dies. Now, what would it have been appropriate? I mean, this is, I, I think as a kid, I always sympathized with poor Uzzah because what was he supposed to do? Let it hit the ground? And the answer is, yeah, except for the fact it probably wouldn't have hit the ground. I mean, God's probably going to take care of his ark. Uh, so, so this, um, you know, really at the, at the root of it, it shows uh, self-reliance rather, rather than a reliance on God's word. And Uzzah good intention as it may have been, ends up forfeiting his life. Now, this doesn't sit well with David. And I even, I even looked at some of the parallel texts to make sure this is right. And I think Chronicles puts it even stronger. So if you look at verse 8, and David was angry because the Lord has, had burst forth against Uzzah. And First Chronicles puts it, or yeah, puts it um, that David was angry at the Lord or something like that. I mean, it's hardly so... I mean, this is a, this is a really strange event because there's all this jubilation and then suddenly, I mean, you can just hear all the instruments stop. Uzzah falls down dead. The mood is kind of ruined. Uh, David is upset. He's angry. Um, I, think, I think evidently enough, angry at God, angry at the situation, angry at Uzzah, just angry, um, but certainly some of that directed toward the Lord or at least, at least kind of an, an anger and fear mixed together directed toward the Lord. Um, so then the latter half of verse 8, and that place is called Perez Uzzah. Now we just heard that word Perez with Baal Perez, where the Lord broke out against the enemies of, of David, and now he calls it uh, Perez Uzzah, the breaking out against Uzzah. Which is, which is I, don't, I mean, I don't know how to take this. At least in English... What would it be? 3,000 years later, this seems quite spicy. I don't know if that's how it actually was at the time, but I mean, in effect, he's saying you treated Uzzah the way, this is how it sounds to Western ears, you treated Uzzah the same way you treated the Philistines. It seems like there's, a, like there's anger and a pushback here on the part of David. It's not, 
but it's not but the Lord doesn't respond in anger by putting David in his place or any other such thing so again that's just that's kind of how it sounds to my ears to our ears perhaps if you if you agree with me but I'm not sure exactly that's how it was in context I've got some doubts there so otherwise the Lord would have spoken uh, to you know harshly to David one would think Verse 9, and David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. So this is, uh, I mean, again, it's quite, quite dramatic because they're, they're celebrating. Everybody's having a great time, victories. The Lord is great, you know. Instruments blaring, the oxen stumbles, the ark slips, Uzzah touches it, Uzzah dies. It's a big deal. And then David is angry, and then uh, he calls the place, names the place, breaking out against Uzzah. And then he says, that's it, like my plan to take the ark into my city? Nope. I'm afraid of it. I, you know, be put to death. What if it slips and I were to touch it, you know? So... Uh, off, off it goes. It's just really an incredible kind of event because there's not a lot described here. You don't have this, uh, you know, you don't have this thing where the Lord corrects him or where David repents. It's just there's this thing, and uh, they get over it. <laughs> they, they meaning, I mean, this is what's so kind of funny about it. They meaning Yahweh and David, uh, but it's this thing that happens. Yeah, I saw a hand. <laughs> All the music making disturbed the ox. <laughs> God was so mad that the ox was uh, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? The the Psalms do list out uh, these these instruments as you know they're all fitting for the corporate worship. I think our problem is we we want to anachronistically read like a rock band or a jazz, jazz ensemble into this as if uh, this were you know identical to contemporary worship or something, which it clearly isn't. Uh, it is just this really interesting and sobering juxtaposition, too, that, I mean, that this event happens, that you've got the jubilation and the death. It's just, I don't know, it's two, it's two sides of the coin of the true God. There's, there's joy and fear. And uh, so da anyway, be that as it may, David says, um, yeah, I'm not going to take the ark into, into my city. So off it goes into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. All right, and then verse 11, And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So there, you know, the Lord, for those who are faithful, the, his presence is a blessing. For those who are unfaithful, like the cities in Philistia, his presence is a curse. Verse 12, and it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. All right, so let's try this again. Let's continue. You know, and then in that sense too, I think you can read, there, there, again, even though the, the words don't explicitly say as much, it's almost this sense of like the fear is respect and we're going to let the Lord cool off and before I take the ark into my city 
And then as the Lord is blessing Obed-Edom, that seems to be evidence to David that the Lord has cooled off on the basis of this infraction. He's willing to bless the people. And so David, you know, I think maybe that's the best sense of it is um, David takes this as a sign that, that the Lord has, has uh, gotten over his anger and they're ready to move on. That's a very interesting account. Very interesting. Some of the, I mean, so many, I hope maybe you've seen this along the way. I certainly have at various times in 1 Samuel in particular. The things I'm thinking and meditating deeply on because it's definitely God coloring outside of the lines and, you know, just definitely some weird kinds of instances that, you know. And I was marveling just the other day and contemplating on, um, you know, that the people want a king. It's obviously the wrong thing to do. But God says, yeah, okay, go ahead and do it. You know, that's just very interesting. Very, very interesting. Okay, well, they're rejoicing. So, uh, you know, I guess the parade picks back up where it left off three months later, kind of. And uh, let's see. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing, verse 13. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Now, the study note, I mean, the six steps is interesting. The study note says, this time David had the Levites carry the ark according to God's word, which seems to infer then that you know, the real problem was having it on the cart, albeit a new cart. They should have had the Levites come get it. It was on the cart, thus it slipped. Like, that seems to connect some dots there. Um, in regard to the steps, as with English paces, a unit of measure, perhaps each step was 30 inches. I don't know what that's about, but that's what the study note says. And then sacrifice to consecrate the procession. Apparently, Sacrifices continued at intervals throughout the procession. You can go to First Chronicles 15:26. Chronicles is really interesting to read parallel to it. I didn't do it for this specific text, but I've done it for other sections. And it's, it's really kind of fun because it's, you get a different angle on some of the things, and some of the things are stated more emphatically there. It's like, yeah, it's like having another, another source, another set of eyes that was there. All right, well... They're sacrificing as they go. They've got the, and maybe that's one of the big morals of this text too, as I kind of think and process through this thing out loud. Um, they start off doing it respectfully, but not the Lord's way. And now the second time they're doing it the Lord's way. And there's complete acknowledgement of who he is. I mean, that's the sacrifices and of their sinfulness and um, the need for his mercy. And so you've got the priests there. You've got the sacrifices going. Um, you've got God m more highly honored, both in accord with his word and just the, the, the theological reality. Okay, so again, verse 13, when those who bore the ark of God had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Now, as the study note points out, this is the only clear reference to male dancing in Scripture, to which uh, this is one of my favorite proof texts for all of life, you know. 
David danced only once. It wasn't for his wife. It was for the Lord. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I knew you'd like that one. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, you've been vindicated. Yeah, all males have been vindicated. It doesn't get us out of trouble, so probably should still dance once in a while. But anyway, here's the uh, yeah, only clear reference to male dancing in the scripture, which is interesting. Now, the linen ephod, much more interesting. And, and really, um, so, so the linen ephod, this is the priestly garment, but we see other kings as the sort of the leader of the royal priesthood that God's people are, wearing ephods from time to time. So there's nothing unusual about that. Um, David wears this garment as a prophet and as the leader of God's kingdom and priests. Okay, and that's true too. But one of the minor themes of this text has had to do with clothing. Remember this, remember this business about uh, Jonathan taking off his royal robes and giving them to David, um, showing that he's the heir, not Jonathan, David's the heir. And then too, with Saul, um, remember when he goes to try to kill uh, David and, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him and he ends up kind of in this, in this strange state where he ends up stripping off his garments. And the, the point may well there be dual, his nakedness and shame, but also that his, his kingly garments are off. He's lost the office. And so really that's what ought to inform our reading here. And also Michal's response, or Michal's response. Um, David is not coming in in his royal garb, dressed to the nines, like, I'm the important king here. He's coming in in a priestly ephod, which is relatively quite common, quite plain, quite lower caste, if you will, lower class. And so he's, uh, this is an act of, of uh, for a king, this is, he's humbling himself via his attire. Let's put it that way. And that's probably what upsets uh, Michal more than anything. In my mind, I've always got, because of Michal's accusation, I've always had it somewhere in my mind that David actually, you know, did expose himself. There's actually no indication of this in the text whatsoever. This is just her accusation, okay? So I don't know where this, where this uh, comes from other than, other than Michal. Um, so, so David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord, verse 16, came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. That's very interesting because the last, well, Michal's been through a lot. She's a, like so many people, she's a sympathetic character because um, at, least, at least as we see it presented, because Michal, of course, daughter of Saul, given to David, actually helped David at one point. Remember when, da when Saul wanted to kill David and um, she had him escape and then pretended that he was sick in the bed and they carried the bed up and you know, Saul tried to kill him, kill him and realized he wasn't there in the bed. So Michal has been okay so far, but as David then had to flee because of Saul, then Saul gives Michal over to this other man, 
So she's been through a lot, and then, of course, David wants her back and takes her back, and her then-husband comes, like, weeping and begging all the way after. So, I mean, all of these things are kind of traumatic. Um, we're, but anyway, it's just from the last example, from the last story we've been given of Mikal, this seems a little out of character, but again, maybe she's changed. Who knows? Whatever. It is what it is. And so she, uh, she despises David in her heart. Um, perhaps he doesn't measure up in, in her mind to uh, the images and memories she had of her own father. All right, verse 17, and they brought, in the, they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. Now, that's interesting. As the study note will point out, this is a large tent set up according to the design of Moses' tabernacle, uh, but this is not the official tabernacle. Okay. Um, so if you go look at 1 Chronicles 15.1, I mean, it's just, it's just this. David makes a tent modeled off of the tabernacle. It's not the tabernacle, and this is going to suffice for the tent. So uh, that's, that's what it is. And then David offered a burnt, burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. I mean, this is just a beautiful kind of picture of, uh, you know, I think it's a foreshadowing of Christ who worships acceptably before his God and Father and our God and Father, and then bestows the blessings and benefits that God has given upon the people, just as Christ does. I mean, as David distributes, um, you know, the, the bread and meat and cake of raisins to each one, um, certainly, the, certainly the meat stands out there, though possibly also the other elements as being, I mean, they didn't have, it's not like, it's not like us where you eat meat, you know, twice a day, <laughs> every day of the week. Uh, it's a rarity, it's a delicacy. So the, anyway, this is, a, this is a very gracious gift that David gives to the people and reminds us of our Lord Jesus distributing his gracious gifts to us, not least of which his supper, for the forgiveness of our sins. So reflect on those themes. Now, it was going great for David outside, but... Uh, yeah, when he goes home, it's not so great. So verse 20, and David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So she accuses him here of being, you know, of exposing himself, but there's just zero evidence that he did that. More, more likely the case, she despises his humble appearance. She despises the fact that he was dancing. He should have been, you know, strutting like a good king and despises the fact that he's in a linen ephod, you know? He should be fully decked out. And so she's obviously upset with his show of humility and piety, zeal for the Lord. Um, you know, really probably indicating some deeper spiritual problems that she herself is having. 
but the text doesn't psychologize. So 21, and David said to Michal, it was before the Lord. I mean, this is the biggest proof that he didn't expose himself, because if you exposed yourself before the Lord, like I mean, this is expressly forbidden in the law as what the pagan people do, and there are precautions put in place so that this doesn't happen. David says, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father. Well, maybe the text does psychologize. (laughs) He basically calls her out for, you know, her her thinking her father is better than him. It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will make Mary before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this and I will be abased in your eyes. Um, so there the, I, I mean, there the language, it may be under, hard to understand just superficially, but of course what he means is, I'm going to worship the Lord the way the Lord needs to be worshipped, and you're going to hate me, and whoever else wants to view this cynically is going to hate me tough. I'm going to still do it. Um, I don't care if I'm contemptible or abased in your eyes. I'm going to worship the Lord. And then he continues, but by... The female servants of whom you have spoken by them, I shall be held in honor. So uh, that, is, that is because of the bitterness of your heart, you're going to you know, hold me in contempt. I'll be abased in your eyes, but their hearts aren't bitter, and they'll see me worshiping the Lord, and in their hearts and their eyes, uh, they will hold me in honor. So this is a pretty uh, full-throated rebuke. I mean, David's not going to take this. And he pretty much, uh, pretty much puts Michal in her place. Verse 23, And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death, which is quite tragic. And the implication there of sticking that verse right there is, I mean, at least it draws to mind the question of if this was a punishment. But, uh, you know, as David's first, first wife, she should have bore his first son, and that didn't happen, Uh, nor did she bear children, apparently, um, with her not-husband due to Saul, nor David after they reunited. All right, so Michal kind of uh, ends there as a tragic figure. Um, Continuing a theme somewhat of just the... uh, It's the technical term, the petering out of Saul's line. I mean, the just Saul's line doesn't end with anything great. It just sort of ends. I mean, within it, with with one possible exception that we'll see. But I mean, ba- basically, at this point, the only one we know of Saul's line that's that's around is that uh, I'm going to botch his name, Mephibosheth. How does it go? I don't, anyway, well, I'm sure I mispronounced it. But the, remember the guy, the poor kid that got crippled on the way out? He's the, he's the only guy left. So I think that that's the, I think that that's really the narrative import in many respects in terms of a broader, you know, arcing theme, is you've got you've got Saul's line just coming to naught, and David's line excelling. So the the mighty are cast down, the humble are lifted up. Um, that's been the theme throughout First and Second Samuel. I think that that's what's what's really going on here. All right. Any thoughts you have? Any questions? Anything I missed?
Okay, that's, uh, let's go on to chapter seven then. I, here you can see where, again, as with the ark, so with this section, where David's priorities are just so much different than Saul's priorities. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel. Interesting illusion that, that whatever the rulership is over Israel is described in the language of shepherding, which of course then points us to our good shepherd. All right, picking up where we left off then, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. There's that theme again of the humble being made mighty, the lowly being brought up. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And it's, tr it's true. I mean, every once in a while, you've got to pause and just recognize this. What ancient king is there that's as well-known as David? I mean, it's just, he's there, isn't he? He's, he's just, it's absolutely true. And we ought, to, we ought to stop and marvel at that because this text was written well before Christ. It's still around. And David is still known as one of the great ancient kings, if not the greatest, just depending on how one's thinking. All right. So I will make for you a great name, verse 9, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Now, this is interesting because already even here, like, when does this happen? Now, when does this happen? When does God make, when, when, when does Israel actually exist in this kind of state where all the enemies are cut off? Where there's just no, I mean, there's, there's no one to disturb you anymore. The violent man will afflict you no more. I mean, this never happens in a fallen world, does it? 
already you can discern in the Lord's prophecy to David, not only the, the, you know, the sort of historical sense of I'm going to make you prophet, but in the ahistoric, trans, you know, I'm going to make the kingdom prophet and do well. I'm going, but in the ahistorical, transcendental sense of the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of Messiah, uh, that, that the new heavens and the new earth, frankly, that's the only time where God's people are going to be planted, where we're going to dwell in our own place and be disturbed no more, where violent men will afflict us no more etc., etc. I mean, that's the new heavens and the new earth. So what we want to do in our, in our mind's eye is we want to hear this both in how it relates to uh, Israel, and so you can think of the reign of David, you can think of the reign of uh, Solomon, you can think of Israel at its height, and you can see these words true, but not fully true. Not fully true until Christ, until the new heavens and the new earth. So I bring that up because this whole section we want to see through this sort of bifocal lens. It refers both to the kingdom of David and Solomon in one sense, but in a greater sense to Christ and the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, so verse 10, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So this is great. David wants to make the Lord a house. The Lord says, I'm going to make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Okay, are we talking about Solomon or Christ here? Y yes. <laughs> I mean, really, it works for either one, doesn't it? It, wor it really works for either one, heretofore. Okay, verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. Who ends up building the, the literal temple? Solomon. Okay, but then, of course, with Christ, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. So... Christ, you see? So that's what I mean by the, the bifocal way. You can see how this is true for Solomon. You can see how it's true for Christ. Okay, so he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And that, of course, leaning more heavily toward Christ. In fact, um, well, what comes next, verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now that that language right there is picked up and cited in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, as referring explicitly to Christ. So that's just showing us how we ought to read and take the, uh, the Old Testament text. It's like, yeah, it certainly has to do with Solomon. It certainly has to do with Christ. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, huh? Well, does Jesus commit iniquity? The same book of Hebrews says, no, he's without sin. And everywhere in the scriptures he's described as the, as the sinless lamb of God, the spotless lamb of God. When he commits iniquity, that certainly fits more Solomon. Now, very loosely, very poetically, not that Jesus ever commits sin, but he does indeed bear 
our sins. And so look what happens next. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. So how can you not glimpse that and at least see in part uh, the passion of Jesus where he's scourged, where he's beaten with rods and given stripes? Yeah, by his stripes we are healed, uh, Isaiah will, will later write. Okay, so again, um, you know, especially with the language of he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and stripes of the sons of men. I mean, clearly you can see how when a, when a king, including Solomon or, and Solomon's heirs, when they commit iniquity against the Lord, what does the Lord do? He raises up pagan nations to go after them. And so that's clearly in view here, but we can't help but reflect on Christ as well. And then verse 15, but my steadfast love, it's really my, my covenantal love, will not depart from him. It's true for Solomon. It's certainly true for Christ. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So, like, look, I cut off Saul. I'm not going to cut, cut it off from Solomon. And that's true, he doesn't. Nor does he cut it off from Christ, of course. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. And that sure sounds like messianic illusion. Your throne shall be established forever. And that too. In accordance with all these words and accordance with all this vision, which is very strange in and of itself, because apparently this was given some visual aspect. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And that vision really probably ultimately goes back to verse 4. I, sh I was going to point this out, but if you go back to verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. That, you know, that's that language of the word of the Lord being a person who comes to Nathan and tells him these things. That you know, the word of the Lord, the same word that is then made flesh. Which it's interesting, if that's the second person of the Trinity, he's prophesying in part about himself. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so very interesting. Because, again, you know, whether, I mean, I, don't, I just don't see why we have to do this like, well, it must be Solomon or it must be Christ. Why can't it be both? So, given that it's both, we have, we have this very, very poignant, very, very obvious reference and meditation, at least in part, on the Messiah and that promise given to David. You know, further, further remembrance that the Old Testament peoples are saved by faith in Christ. They're, they're saved by faith in Christ, the Christ who is to come. Just as we're saved by the Christ who did come, they're saved by the Christ who would come. Just as our faith is in him whom we have not seen and yet believe, their faith was in him whom they had not seen and yet believed. And so, you know, Christianity is, is the ancient, the, you know, the, the religion that goes the furthest back. It's the most ancient of all religions. And uh, the Old Testament Hebrew people were Christians. Um, modern Judaism, modern Israel has become apostate and turned away from the Christianity of its own scriptures.
All right, this is, uh, this is God's covenant with David. Any thoughts you have, any questions or comments, anything I messed up? All right, so Nathan uh, speaks these things to David. Then we have David's prayer and response. So verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. Uh, this is unusual. He goes into this tent that is not the tent, but looks like the tent. And uh, the ark is in there. And that's what's unusual. So King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. That is very interesting. Even though this promise is just given to David, David knows it's given to mankind far more reaching. So David, too, understands this messianically. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. He sees it as a, as a blessing to all mankind and for the consideration and instruction of all mankind. Verse 20, And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. And there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Here, even in this prayer, you can hear some of the echoes and language and themes that David uses in his Psalms. Some of that same, same language. Um, there is no God besides you. Again, this is referring to God compared to the other gods around. You know, the, again, the fallen angels and the small g gods of the nations. Um, He's saying, there is, no, there is no God besides you. You're the greatest. And uh, yeah, there is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. Verse 23, and who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. So there again, you'll get this idea of the spiritual warfare taking place through the physical warfare of the nations. And you have this image of the gods of the nations and then Yahweh selecting Israel, think very concretely of Abraham where he snatches him out from under idolatry, out from under one of these gods, and God claims him as his own and makes for him a people, and thus God becomes the God of Israel. And then the remarkable thing, the stunning thing that Paul, that Paul brings up in Ephesians, for example, in Colossians, for example, probably many other places too, is that, is that God who chose Israel and chose to be the God of Israel in Christ Jesus chooses also to be the God of the Gentiles and to take from every nation underneath all the other gods, all who would believe in him and to unite them under himself, with a new king, not David, but Christ, and to give them a new promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. 
So this gives us a little bit of the co cosmic scope and perspective of what's going on, to which, again, Paul regularly refers. And it's all right here in the text. I think we're just accustomed to kind of skipping over it a little too quickly. All right, verse 24. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. I mean, now you see the import and the impact of Christ being called the son of David and how that's clearly messianic, clearly divinely understood. When he's called the son of David, it's tying right into this promise of God. The Lord of hosts is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established before you. And why Matthew starts his gospel by connecting Jesus very concretely to this lineage of the house and line of David. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And there, look, I mean... Obviously, David very much fears and respects God, probably in no small part due to Uzzah. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. So there the end of David's prayer, and a beautiful prayer. He restates the promises of God and, in effect, holds God to his promises and says, I believe, please make it happen. Thanks and praise be to you. So there's a great place to, to stop for the day, and we'll simply pick up next week at chapter 8. The Lord